We opened uh, bank accounts for our kids uh, a couple years ago, and Brecken was not yet 13. And uh, the deal is, you have to be 13 to get a checking account. So he, uh, he turned 13, and so um, I took him down there, and we got his checking account all done, and uh, filled out all the paperwork and everything, put some money in there. It's another story. I think I got So put some money in there, and uh, so we got his little debit card, and we went on vacation, and uh, we were doing some shopping, and we had told the kids, we'll, we'll buy you, you know, a souvenir. But he wanted to buy his own souvenir. He wanted to use his debit card. So he was all excited for it. So I was like, sure. So he uses his debit card, and they give him a little slip to sign, and he signs his name. And I said, who's Bob? Because I looked at his signature, and it said Bob. And I was like, what? And he said, I messed it up. So he, he scribbled it out, and then he put B-E-S. So I was like, okay. And I was like, that's not even your initials, man. What? What happened here? So we're walking out the store, whatever, and he tells me, "Yeah, man, when they gave me the when we gave the paperwork to sign, so long as you put down whatever you're going to sign, it's totally legal." I said, "What's legal?" He said, "I use my gamertag initials." If you don't know what that means, that just means his online screen name for gaming he used as his initials for his debit card signature. So. I was like, hey, I mean, whatever works for you, man. I was a little insulted he didn't want to carry, carry my name. But uh, it was just so funny. And uh, so I, I, uh, the text for this morning lands on a specific point. So I'm going to jump over the majority of the text, not because I'm going to ignore it or because we'll actually go through the bulk of the text next week. But the continuity that's provided from what we, what we sort of did as the foundation for baptism, uh, we'll carry over into this week where we land. So, so I, I just, I just that's your forewarning that I'm, I'm going to just camp on one verse out of the whole verses I'm going to read. But Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is more desirable than riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. Now, I wonder if you have considered what it means that you carry the name of Christian. Or that you bear a name that even is not your own, besides, you know, whatever your last name is. And it's given to you. For you, for you to both proclaim it and to, to um, uh, claim it as your own identity. identity. So it's so a name that you belong to because you've been baptized. We used to sing this song at Camp I.I.C. I.I.C. Did you guys know that one? Thank you. I am a Christian, right? And when you feel an extra happy, you'd add a little ending on it. So it was like, ha, 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 yeah, yeah every, and I'm L I V E T. Right? Okay, okay. So, that being said, our identity uh, this morning is we brought something in here besides our, our family name. We we brought into this place hopefully the the, the identity of being a Christian. Now, if you think about what, what an identity is, or the fact that we can have things called an identity crisis, right? So, some guy. Crest a certain age, he starts to feel that he's not, you know, who he used to be, and so maybe he dyes his hair back from gray, wherever he ended up, buys a sports car, we call that a midlife crisis, because they're having a crisis of, who am I really? And so we start to try to find our identity in all these different ways, and so um, we have a, a cultural identity crisis. And, and in, 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 in light of what's happening in, in, in culture and in, uh, in, in our approach to understanding identity, I think this morning I want to take the most amount of our time to address that idea and get us firmly planted on what it means that we do 
carry a name, a name other, other than our own. own. So with that so being said, said, let me pray, pray for us and, and get, get to, to the, word. the Word. Father, Father we love you. Love you. Come, come this morning, this morning as, as a humble people. We just ask that you would speak through the Word. word. And we thank, thank you that it's been recorded, recorded truth, truth for us, and that by your spirit, spirit it's breathed, breathed to us, and it guides us into all truth. truth. We're surrounded, We're surrounded by, by a lot of noise, noise a lot of untruth. Answering, answering the question, question who am I? So, Father, so Father this, morning, this morning I pray that you, that you would speak clearly who we are, are in you and in your son. son. So we need your help to understand, to see, to perceive, to receive what you give. Father, I ask that you equip us what we don't have, which is spiritual ears, spiritual eyes, and the heart that can receive your words and understand. Father, I ask that you do this this morning, every time, and amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray. Never was said. Amen. I'm going to need some help with slides, if you would. Walter, Walter, this morning, this morning uh, the title uh, of the message is Identity Crisis, crisis. What? In a name, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 19, 19 and, and read through, through verse 26. 26. So, so, are you there? Are you there? Okay. okay. As we As begin, begin, so, so just, just to... to Jog your memory, what's just happened is Cornelius um, had received, he was a Gentile, received the Holy Spirit. Peter had returned to Jerusalem and he defended giving uh, baptism to the Gentile believers. Now, there's a transition in the text here, it's kind of like a meanwhile back at the ranch sort of situation. And so we're going to transition back to sort of another line of evangelism that's going out. So that's what's happening in verse 19. So here we go. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and they were and speaking, speaking the word to no one except for Jews. Jews. But, but there were there some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who had, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. They were preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church. Jerusalem. And, and they say Barnabas to Antioch. Antioch. So, so we're getting some, some like past things we already had heard about some different, different characters in the story where returning Barnabas was in chapter two, two, and Stephen was stoned, and not not stoned, not mild high stone, but he was killed for his faith in an accident. And that caused a great persecution of the church. And so then it dispersed all the believers. Except for the apostles were told, and so they had gone about evangelizing. Now, now, that report, that report of, of the fact that, that many, many were coming, were coming to, the Lord to the Lord reaches the ears of those in Jerusalem and in verse 23, he came, came they said they Barnabas, said Barnabas when, he when he came and saw the grace of God, God he was he glad, glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. To look, to look for Saul. Saul. Saul's, Saul's been there, there but we don't, we don't know how many years, but it's been a few years, years because he had gone, gone to Jerusalem, and, and the apostles didn't really think he was converted, and so Barnabas never came alongside, and they sort of said, no, he's really, really with us, and so he got to remain there for a few years, but then everybody would kill him, so they sent him to Tarsus. So he's been there for a few years, and so Barnabas goes, I know the right guy for the job, and so he went and found him, and he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. And taught a great many people. people. And then, and then here, here is, is what he first morning. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called 
Christians, Christians is the is first, first time, time the term that, that, that we regularly just cast around uh, with, with very little concern about what it means. It, it first appears here in Antioch among these pagan believers. They're called Christians. And so this morning I want to get to the heart of what the importance of this is. So God's name is a, is a significant um, character throughout Scripture. I say that specifically in that way. God's own name becomes a character in Scripture. Uh, if you were with us for the Exodus series, uh, you, you kind of recollect some of this, but um, when Moses goes and he has the burning bush experience, and uh, Exodus chapter 3, and he asks, who, who, who do, do I say sent me? What is, what is your name? God, God, God calls Moses, tells him to go and appear before Pharaoh. Pharaoh and he's going to set his people free and all that story, story that we know. And he, he, he asks him, who shall I say sent me? And so God gives his name to Moses. And in, in God's own mouth, when he says uh, what his name is, he says, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or I am what I am. And it's in this weird... Um, tense that also it has a future tense to it. So, and I will be what I will be. And so when he says, who shall I say sent me? He says that. And then when Moses repeats that back, it's he is. So when we say God's name, we're actually saying he is what he is, or he is what he will be. So in that, in that proper name, that all capital letters, Lord, that you see in the Bible is Yahweh, right? You guys know this? Jogging any memories? If you're an old school King James or Jehovah, okay? So there you go. That's the name of God. And this name of God takes on its own character and being throughout the, the, the scriptural narrative. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11, um, this is the Lord speaking. It says, the Lord your God will choose a dwelling for his own name. And there you are to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, choice offerings. All of those will be brought to the Lord. In 1 Kings 8.20, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says, I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In Nehemiah 1.8, when they're going back to rebuild the temple, he says this, Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses when you said, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep and practice my commandments, then even your exiles who have been banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. All of those uh, you can see that the, the, the object of God's name has its own place. It's, it's its own story. It's its own character, if you will, throughout Scripture. So where is the place that's being referred to in these Scriptures I just read? you? Where does God's name dwell? No, no. In, in, these, in these commands or in these, in these verses in the Old Testament, where does God's name dwell? In the temple. In, in the temple, the temple is where God said his presence will be. And his name represents his presence. His presence is full of his name. And so now, where does the Spirit of God rest? Well, that is answered by asking, well, in the New Testament, where is the temple? Us. 1 Corinthians, I have that scripture. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the place God's name dwells is in the temple. And now in the New Testament, by his spirit, his name dwells with and in us. Now, the Great Commission. It's a familiar passage to you, hopefully. Jesus commanded not just baptism, which we talked about last week. 
But pay special attention to the flow of thought. So he says, all authority heaven and earth given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Can you put that up? No, we can't. Well, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. And he says, baptizing them in the name. In the name of who? Well, there he adds, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says this, it's a radical statement. If you consider it in light of the way that Israel understands God's name and what God's name uh, profoundly means and where it resides. So this is a, a radical statement that he makes that I'm, I'm, you're going to baptize people in the name, yes, of the Father, but now also in my name and by the Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, which is looking backward now. So Paul is writing, he's looking backward at the time of Israel, stewarding the name, and he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that's the nation of Israel, when they were wandering in the desert, they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea being parted. They all went through that. And then verse 2 says, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the, the, the flow of thought here, the logic is, by them uh, being under the cloud, which was representative of God's presence going with them, and the pillar that was fire before them. And then going through the sea is this type of baptism, but it says they're baptized into Moses or into Moses' covenant that's made. So now Jesus declares that you should go baptize all the nations in my name. So he's, he's got a new covenant in a new name under his authority with the Spirit, which wasn't necessarily part of the covenant before in the same way. And so his commission is to go into all the nations, baptizing them with this new name. So in Christ, we get to participate in the new covenant with all of its blessings and benefits under the authority of Jesus' name. So God's name is an essential aspect of his being, his glory. So the glory, if, if you want to think about this, it doesn't mean necessarily like the brightness of God. It's his reputation. So the reputation of God is on the line. And so it's on the line for any time that he gives his name to someone and allows them to steward it. And that's exactly what he did to Israel. He said, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to allow my, my name to dwell among you. And because of that, be holy because I'm a holy God. So don't defame my name or my glory. So this is really the basis of all of the covenant for Israel. So um, literally translated, Israel's name means those who strive with, with, with God. And some people translate those who struggle with God. So when, when God calls Israel, he says, you're my firstborn. He calls them that in Exodus. He says, my firstborn son is, is the whole nation, and I want you to strive with me. So throughout the Old Testament, whenever God works in power, or he makes a promise, or he corrects something, or he makes a judgment, or he, he just moves uh, on his own, on his own uh, accord, we're always told that he does it for a specific purpose. And it's always attached to his namesake. I'm doing this for my name. Why does he do that? Well, he does that because Israel's not doing a good job of that. So he needs to, to correct what they're not showing in truth. So God acts to preserve what Israel defames. And they were charged with honoring and preserving God's name, but they failed to do that. So they in, in, uh, incorrectly or not well do they reflect God's glory. So... You know this because, uh, is it Psalm 23? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his, 
namesake. God is acting. He's, he's keeping you righteous for his own name, not, not for your name, not for your own good, but because that's the kind of God that he is. And so we're told that now in the New Testament, because of all that Jesus did, because he humbled himself and he came, he is given the name that's above every name. So we have a, a new name now that it's playing a role. Jesus' name, Yeshua, means God is salvation. So it's not one who struggles with God, but God himself is salvation. So in our text, real quick, now back to Acts, we're told that there is a real force behind what's happening. So the, the full thought is this. As, as people were dispersed, they went to all the different places. And in Antioch, they spread the name of the Lord, and a great number of people turned to the Lord. Who, who made that happen? Well, we don't have any names of people, but we're told specifically that the hand of the Lord was with them. That's in verse 21. The reason why all of these people are turning to God is because the hand of the Lord was with them. This is the same thing that Moses was promised. Moses, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And whatever I do, that's what I am. And my glory will go with you. My presence will be with you. That's the promise. And my hand will be with you. God's answer to Moses was in response to Moses' question. He asked, well, who am I? Who am I? Because God had said, look, you're, you're going to go before Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to set my people free. And Moses says, well, who am I? And he doesn't say, well, Moses, let me tell you all the good attributes that you have that's probably going to make this happen. It's like, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. Let me tell you who I am and I will be with you. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's, it's not that Moses had a powerful hand. It's that God's hand was with Moses and therefore he had a powerful hand. And this is not a hand that we can force. It's a hand of promise. The assurance of God's hand is an essential aspect of God's presence and God's character. And we have that now in the name of Christ. So just to maybe fill in some, some blanks or some question marks maybe that you've had in the past. When, G, when Jesus says in John chapter 14, he makes a couple of statements. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then later in chapter 16, he says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. So you, you might have maybe wondered in the past, and I think there's some unfortunate punctuation there that makes us miss the point of what Jesus actually says in those two statements. Whatever you ask, pause. Whatever you ask, in my name, I will do it. That's, that's, a, that's a distinct difference So what had happened in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. It was ask, and the Lord will do it. But now he's, he's, he's giving himself as the authority. I will do it. I will act on my behalf. If you ask me anything, pause. In my name, I will do it. And then he goes to, later on, he says, up to now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. Why? Well, because he had not yet been given the name that was above every name. But once he ascends and he has all authority, now he can say, whatever you ask, anything that is given now is in my name. Does that maybe fill in some blanks for you? Because the name theology that happened in the Old Testament under Yahweh is still happening with Jesus. So Jesus warns specifically against the misuse of his name. Any church that thinks that they can function in Christ's name without Christ's spirit or presence is in for a rude awakening. Read Revelation, the letters to the churches. He warns them not to believe that they can just uh, espouse that they're a church of Christ and not have his presence there with them. 
This means that our strategies, our talents, our resources, our sparkling personalities are not the reason why God moves. Now, you probably have all of those good things, but that's not the reason why God moves. It's when God's hand is with us and in Jesus' name. And there's a lot of confusion now in the culture that carries over into the church. I want you to like go with a hypothetical scenario. Suppose you move into a new town and you go to get a job and you apply and you fill out whatever application form they give you and you hand them the application, you slide it across the desk and they go, hey, John Smith, I don't know, for the sake of the argument, um, you know, and they run the background check and they see that you've got a history, like misdemeanors, spent a lot of time jail and probably a flight risk and like they're pretty sure that you're a bad person and come to find out there's somebody else that shares that name with you and um, if I say the last name Bundy what do you you think of Ted Bundy right you can ruin a name right or it it can be confused and so um, we, we need to keep in mind that When we carry the name of Christ, when we're called Christians, we carry that around, we are responsible in the same way that you're responsible for carrying your own last name, and we can defame that name. I was going to show you a video clip, and I thought better of it, because I just didn't want to give him the FaceTime. But there's there's a pastor right now, and uh, there's a pastor right now, and he's he's all over social media, and he is basically uh, famous for... Um, affirming all the different identities that are out there in culture, whether that's your, uh, your, your cultural identity, your sexual identity, your preferences, all of those things. And he's out there, and I, I don't have the verbatim quote, but he says something to the effect of, the, the Lord sees your unions as holy. And he says, I want you to know as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you're okay. And he uses those exact words. And so there he is, misrepresenting the name of Christ, affirming people in sin across all these different identities. So tragically, I think in a good, I think it has the right heart that we want people, more people, to hear about the message of God. But what we do is we lead more people astray when we give them a false message about a false God, a false Christ. That's not in the name of Christ. And so we can't extend love that is not fully also in truth or under a warped definition of what love is, or a softer definition of what truth is. In our cultural moment, there's a fixation and confusion around identity. It's, it's everywhere you look. It's about what, what is your preference here? What do you, what do you like? What, do, what is your desire? And that becomes your identity. It's central to the flow of thought that is away from what God says our identity is. So the spirit of the world is carrying us in this direction that says identity, 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 but it's whatever you think, it's whatever you feel, in which case it's meaningless because it can change from day to day. So identity can't mean everything and nothing. So this is a subversion of the clear truths of what God says in Scripture. The world says your identity is what you feel, what you believe, whatever you want to decide that day. You have, a, you have all these different kinds of identities that you can choose. But God says your identity is what he calls you and who he is. So, Jesus' name is made great through contrast with culture, not likeness of culture. And that's the mistake of that pastor, and that's the mistake that the church makes. We say, we, we want you to not feel like you are 
out of, out of step with everything else. So we're going to try to be closer to what the culture says identity is. And, and that's okay. And that's what love is. But really what happens is by trying to get closer to culture, we lose the contrast of what Jesus' name really is and what Christianity really is. In the midst of the culture that's struggling in the darkness to try to define this concept of identity, we have to be clear about this question. When somebody says, who am I? The answer is not whatever you feel like. It's not your choices. It's not your behavior. It's not your actions. That's vanity. That is the height of vanity. It's both, it's both inward looking. It says, what, what do I, what can I look inside myself to define myself as being? And that's who I am. So it's, it's, it's inward looking, but it's also vain because it can change. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. So some background about Antioch, because this is where the center, the center of this story takes place. Antioch, which we'll look at a little more next week, was a cosmopolitan city. It was the third largest city in all of Rome. They say something like 500,000 people, which in that day is a lot of people. A poetic way of expressing this by historians, they would say that the, uh, the Orontes, which is the main river source there in Antioch, fl- flows into the Tiber, which is the major river in Rome. And essentially the idea is this. All of culture flowed out from Antioch. The problem is that culture was horribly pagan. All kinds of false god worship. It was the center of worship for Daphne, who was a fertility goddess. So Christians stood out over and against this pagan culture. Why? Because they were Christians, not because they were trying to be so close to the pagan culture that they didn't feel like there was any real distinction. And so they felt more loved, if you want to go that way. Antioch was a perverse place. They were immersed in pagan worship that involved not just temple prostitution, but which led to then the disdain of children because they found them an inconvenience. Does that sound familiar to the day and age that you live in? Children were frequently abandoned in the streets to be, quote-unquote, eaten by the gods. It was the Christians who went through the city and took them in. And because of the superstitions that surrounded communion, they began to get the rumor around that the Christians were eating the babies. The Christians weren't eating the babies. They were taking them in. They were raising them to be Christian children. But they were being abandoned by the culture that had um, created them because of this false worship. Christians amidst a corrupt culture is what provides the contrast to culture, but it's only when we steward Christ's name in truth. Our, our distinct identity as Christians is what separates us from the world, not physical space. If, if we were trying to plan the best way or the, the, the most um, friendly way or the, the, the friendly culture to be in, we probably wouldn't look to the heart of pagan uh, culture, but that's exactly the place where it starts and because it provides the most contrast. But if you know who you are, then you can go into a crowd and not lose yourself. And if you know who you are, you can even go in amidst a place that's hostile to your identity, but it only serves to expose others. When Jesus is, um, as he's doing, he's doing ministry and he's frustrating the Pharisees and they say, you don't even know who your dad is, right? Because Jesus his father's God. And so, you know, Joseph had the whole thing where he wasn't really his birth dad. And so you don't know who your dad is. And Jesus kind of says, on the contrary, I know who my father is. And I know who your father is too. And he says, your father's the devil. Do you see 
the contrast that he preserves in the midst of this culture. It's the contrast that provides them. Not only have you exposed who I am, but exposed who you are. But it's not by trying to meet them in the proverbial middle. In Antioch, we're told, is the first place they were called Christians. They're named from the outside. They didn't call themselves Christians, which is sort of an interesting idea. They didn't, they didn't take the name for themselves. It was given to them, which tells you that it was something that must have been true. The Christian literally means of Christ or in the order of Christ. So think about that. They said, that's who you are. You're just so much like Jesus. That's what we're going to call you. And there's sort of a derogatory nature to it, at least in their minds. But it must have been a huge blessing for them to hear that. In Revelation, when Jesus is making the promise for those that would hold fast to his name, he says, I will call you by a new name. Revelation 17, or, uh, it's in 2.17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manner, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one that receives us. This is a quotation, sort of a paraphrase of a promise that Isaiah had made, that in the future as Israel was restored to the land, that the old name that they had carried, Israel, would be a curse in the mouth of God's real servants, because God would give them a new name, and he would bless that name, and he would keep them in that name, and the land would be plentiful. In Isaiah 65, it says, but his servants in that day he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. This new name is important. Why? Because as we're, we grapple with the idea of who am I, what is, what is my identity, we sort of want to have self-worth in something that we already carry, something that we're already good at, something that we've already done, maybe even to the negative side. Maybe we find our identity in something we've done, and that makes us feel ashamed. We have to be careful not to fall into the trap of trying to improve on Jesus' name. It's already there. It's already complete. And when we want to add our works to that, that's just works righteousness. This actually denies the name of Christ and maintains that you are still what you have or have not done. Let me say that again. If we are trying to improve on Jesus' identity, we are adding a works righteousness. And this denies the name of Christ, which says it's already done. And it maintains that we are still in ourselves what we have done or what we haven't done. So the problem isn't that there are sins out there that create an identity for you that cannot be forgiven. That needs to be said at the outset. Because I think the, the, the real frustration with culture right now is there's sort of a taboo group of people that we say, well, if you're gay, you're transgender, or this certain, certain set of sins, well, that group of people, they just can't seem to, to get in to the church, and that's not the issue. There's no set of sins that cannot be forgiven. In 1 Corinthians, do you have that one? Chapter 6, verse 9. Listen to this list. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, just that list 
is a synopsis, but you could plug any sin you want into that list, and it's going to fit. And that pretty well encompasses anything that you could have found yourself in in the past. But verse 11 turns the whole thing around because it says, and such were some of you. That list of sins, all the things that you may have used to done and practiced, that is what you were, past tense. That's what you were. Some of you were those things. So the problem is not that a sin can't be forgiven. It's that we're demanding to still be defined by an old sinful identity. That's what's the hang-up. Because homosexuality falls in there, but so does being a drunkard. And so does cheating on your taxes. And so does whatever you want to do that you think some less sin. There's no, it doesn't say, well, these categories are for some people that can be forgiven. These ones aren't. These are all the list of sins that can be forgiven as long as it's past tense were some of you. If you're living as a slave to sin, then you're not a slave of Christ. God's children are free in Christ. We are called his own, and we are washed clean. That's the important purpose there. So when we, we, we're in Christ, we're washed clean, and there's no place for any other identity. You can't smuggle any other identity in. You are not Christ, but also this other thing. I'm also still a drunkard. No, you're Christ. You have to leave all hope in yourself. Leave any trust in your old identity and conform to his. The rest of verse 11, is it up there? Yes, but you were washed. Not, not just washed, but you were sanctified. And you were justified in the what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because the washing is universal, all the sins are covered. Let me say that in a way that makes more sense to you. The washing applies to anybody that's a sinner. It does, the washing is what regenerates. It's what makes you baptized in the name. So because that's shared by all kinds of people, and no matter what sin, that means all of the sins are covered, regardless of what you want to plug into the first half of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. But it's verse 11 that turns everything around. It doesn't matter what name or what identity you may have attached to your old life. If you're in Christ, that's in the past. It's, that's what you were, and this is what you are. You no longer are those old things you are in Christ. And this is why it's a problem to try and smuggle in other identities under the name of Christ. Because that's exactly what it is. It's holding fast to a sinful old identity and trying to, trying to make it meet with Christ. But we can't continue to be the old man of sin and still bear the name of Christ. The great exchange of the cross is this. Who Christ is for who you were. Who Christ is and what he's done for who you were. He's totally righteous and you aren't. Colossians 2.14 just simply says it like this. He canceled the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. All of the sins, all the shame, all the whatever identities we carried around, that ended at the cross because Christ crucified it there. So your old identity as a sinner is no more. So it might be easy for us then to confuse this issue and think, well, stewarding Jesus' name now, if I'm called a Christian, I've got to try then conform my behavior to this new identity. It's like a self-beautification. Or we wear a mask to sort of pull off the Christian identity amongst other people. So the hardest thing for us that have been longtime Christians, and if you're a new Christian, is to make grace grace. 
The exchange makes us totally accepted, regardless of how egregious and taboo you think your sin was or is. You are totally accepted if it's crucified. What identifies us as Christian isn't the checklist of who we used to be, but of whose we are now. Okay? It's who you belong to now. So the refrain of what Randy was singing in that song, Who Am I? Who am I? He goes through who he is, and then, but who is God? Well, it's a God who calls, calls you mine. It's when God sets his love upon you, he says, you belong to me. And he sets his name on you, and that makes you holy. We are who and what God says we are. And so he, because he's totally and completely satisfied in Christ with his son, when you carry the name of his son and the identity of his son, he's totally and completely satisfied and pleased with you. And that's the importance of carrying the name Christian. It not only says, I belong to Christ, but I'm accepted in that. So we don't have to, we don't have to scramble around or bumble around and try to find some other meaning to, to make ourselves worthy. You're, you're made worthy because of the name that's been set on you. Because you've, you've taken off, or really the old man has died, and the, the new person is Christ. You live, it's, it's not I, but Christ in me. I pray that this is an encouragement for us this morning. I, I think it's so easy to get caught up in the commentary about all the people that are messing this up, right? Those other churches or the people that are, no. I think we all struggle with the reality of knowing who we are when nobody else is around and what we've done when nobody else could see. But if in truth you're in Christ, then the old is gone and the new has come. Those things have been crucified and you are Christian of Christ. And that's the grounds of your acceptance. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that um, we would hear the call to steward your name, that we would not bear it in vain, that we would um, understand that it's, it's because you've performed everything on our behalf that you can bestow a name on us that is worth everything and it makes us accepted. I pray that amidst a culture that um, presses in on us and tempts us to compromise on the name or to lessen the name or just to lay low that we